So if you've heard me teach enough, or you've just simply known me long enough, um, or well enough, you would know that I'm a major Marvel fan. Maybe that's an understatement if you really know me. But I am a, a Marvel fan, and my, my Marvel fandom has, has led me to have a particular eye for Marvel-themed things, really Marvel-themed anything. Several months ago, I was at a store called The Exchange. It's uh, kind of a nerd store, so if you're not a nerd, you won't be there. I'm there, but it's kind of a nerd store, and I came across uh, something on the shelf that caught my eye, and it also caught my wallet. Um, <laughs> for those of you who are not educated in, in the thing that I really, really enjoy, Marvel, um, this is Iron Man's Mask. And so as I was um, walking through the store, I saw it and I did one of those, like it was like a picture perfect double take. I'm looking at like, what actually is this thing? How much is this thing? And right, I, I think that, you know, we think of, we put posters and paintings and maybe some of you put dishes or um, baskets on your wall and shelves. Guess what? I put Iron Man's helmet on mine. <laughs> Anything can be decor. If you walk away from one thing today, I hope it's not that, but if you do walk away understanding that anything can be decor, that would still be a really good thing for you. Um, so this here, again, this is a mask, and, and yes, I have put it on. I have tried it on. I'm not going to do so now. It'll interfere with the mic too much. Um, however, um, it makes noise. It is battery-powered. Like, this is a legit, like, this is a thing. And I only know that because I put it on once or maybe more than that, but not the point. <laughs> I, I don't regularly put it on anymore, but I do have it displayed in our basement. Again, anything can be decor. Now again, at this point, I've tried it on, I don't regularly, like whatever, right? However, um, it's nothing more than decor at this point, but it did get me thinking, if I was a Marvel fan when I was younger, and I had this, it would take my playing pretend game to the next level. You know, like we always say, like we'll grab sticks and pretend it's a wand or whatever else, do whatever we need to do. But something like this, the game has been upped for sure. I have to imagine that this is true for all of us in some form or fashion, but a major part of my childhood was playing pretend I loved being able to, to get kids in the neighborhood and just kind of, we kind of create our own kind of fantasy and, and just be able to, to act some of those things out. It was not only fun, uh, it created great memories. Also, uh, it was very formative in that it exercised my imagination and it was largely harmless. Now, I, I eventually grew out of playing make-believe like that and I, to be clear, I never actually believed that what I was acting out was real. If, if I wore a mask like this, even as real as it may seem, it would never lead me to believe that I am actually Iron Man. See, the type of mask wearing and playing pretend that we're talking about in the context of using our imaginations as kids, man, that's cute and it's harmless. However, as we get older, we still experience people playing pretend. It just moves from the, the cute and the harmless role-playing to things like manipulation or perhaps even delusion. I'm sure there are people 
that you can think of or scenarios that you can recall where someone was pretending to be someone they were not for some type of gain. Right? They knew they were wearing a, a figurative mask of sorts, but they had a specific motive behind it. On the other hand, we can also probably think of people who don't know they're wearing the figurative mask, but they have bought into the delusion that they are something they are not. This is obviously dangerous in, in any given circumstance, but how much more is this the case when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to matters of eternity, things that have eternal consequences? Where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, Jesus is going to introduce and he's going to warn us about two types of people wearing spiritual masks. So if you haven't already done so, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in verse 15. And as Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, he's drawing a line in the sand as it relates to those who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. We saw a glimpse of this last week as he talked about the two gates that are leading to two destinations. In our passage for this morning, he's going to introduce a few new contrasting illustrations starting in verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." So the first mask wearer that Jesus introduces is the one who wears a mask to deceive others. And he not only reveals who's behind the mask, but he labels them as a threat. I mean, you, you don't tell people to beware of someone that you, you want to play patty cake with, right? He, he's labeling them as a threat. And he says, beware of false prophets, there are warnings all throughout scripture about false prophets, about false teachers. And Jesus says that what makes them especially dangerous is that they are wolves in sheep's clothing. These are individuals who, at first when I was reading this, I thought maybe they were dressing up as sheep, right? They're wearing sheep's clothing to, to make everyone else think they're sheep. I, I actually believe that what the illustration that Jesus is giving is that these are, um, they're painting themselves as shepherds. See, in the New Testament, you have, you have shepherd, which is a, a word for um, another way of calling pastors, teachers, overseers. And so what they are doing is the sheep's clothing is that they are wearing the wool or the garb that shepherds who were in charge of a flock would wear, right? They're making themselves look like they're tending to the flock that is God's people, right? They're putting on a front, they're intentionally putting on sheep's clothing to make themselves look like shepherds to disguise their true nature and intent, he says that they're ravenous wolves. If you know, you think of a wolf, a wolf by itself, it has a very just very neutral, right, neutral state, but for a for a wolf to be ravenous, that means it has ill intent. Jesus calls them ravenous wolves. They've intentionally put on a mask with the intent to deceive. Jesus warns that the threat exists, but he also tells us very clearly how to identify the threat. Again, verse 16. 
He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? It's a rhetorical question. The implied answer is no, this is not the case. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. This language of spiritual fruit is used elsewhere throughout scripture for you. If you know God's word, maybe your mind goes to the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter five. Maybe you think of John 15 as Jesus is spending his last night with his disciples and he's teaching them um, about fruit that he is, um, the vine and they're the branches. Either way, this is a picture that we see all across scripture and it always refers to a means of identifying the nature of the tree or the plant. In this case, again, it's an illustration for a person. And it's a very simple and clear illustration. If you and I were to go out to an apple orchard, like we made plans and we we're going to pick apples. Not right now, it's not fall. Like this, that's the real time to do this. Um, but we were to go to an apple orchard and you in your mind would expect, because you know where we're going, you would expect to find apple trees. Well, if I were to, as we're walking through um, the orchard, if I were to point to a tree and really test your observation skills, I would say, what tree is this? What kind of tree is this? You would be able to look at that tree and you would examine it. You'd say, okay, you'd see apples on it. You'd see apples kind of uh, on the ground and you'd be able to say, apple tree. And I'd give you a pat on the back and say, good job. <laughs> but if we were to come to another tree and I'd say, okay, well, what, what, what is this tree? Using again, your observation skills, if you were to see no apples on the tree, in fact, see no leaves on the tree, and you were to look at the ground and see no apples on the ground, and, and upon closer observation, you'd actually see that this tree is decaying, you would you, there would be no reason for you to say or believe that this tree is an apple tree. There would be nothing that you would see on observation that, that would lead you to believe that. A tree is known by its fruit. Again, it's an illustration. So we're not talking about literal fruit, but spiritual fruit. What is this spiritual fruit that, that scripture talks about, that Jesus is talking about here? I mean, we could really get into the weeds of what this looks like, but in general, uh, a tree that bears good fruit is a life that reflects obedience to Jesus in both word and deed. That's what we're talking about here. Someone who is a good tree, their fruit is their obedience to Jesus, seeking to do his will, not just in what we say, and what we, but also what we do. If a healthy tree that bears good fruit is a life changed by Jesus that is obedient to him, a diseased tree that bears bad fruit is a life unchanged by Jesus and is therefore disobedient to him. In the case of these false prophets, they're able to be identified first and foremost by the lies that they teach about God. Right? It's their words. Specifically, what they teach about Jesus. First John 4, 1 through 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Here it is. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
The false teacher does not teach the way of the narrow gate. They don't teach the way of Jesus. They teach the wide gate, which is earn your salvation. Set your own standards. Seek these things out. They will teach people what they want to hear. They will seek to satisfy itching ears. So they teach what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. And so, and they do so for some type of personal gain. Oftentimes, it's tied to wealth or fame. Not only do they teach what is false, but they naturally live in a way that is contrary to God's will. We learned this last week, but Romans 8 reminds us that the mind that is set on the flesh, that's the mind that is set on our sin and our sin nature, it is hostile to God and it does not submit to him because it can't. These false teachers, they might look the part at first, but upon further examination of the fruit of their lives, their words, their deeds, they can be identified for who they really are. Jesus also assures us that they will be judged for their deception. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The picture that we're given here is, a, is that of a tree that is dead and not fulfilling its purpose, which makes it obviously useless. What do you do with such a tree? If it's not fulfilling its purpose, if it's not doing what it's supposed to do, you chop it up and you throw it to the fire. This fire picture parallels the destruction that awaits those who enter by the wide gate that Jesus was just talking about. Revelation 20:15 says that anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. Similarly, in John 15, this is the passage I mentioned earlier, Jesus says, I am the vine, you, genuine followers of Jesus, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, whoever clings to me, whoever remains in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus introduces these false prophets as threats. He tells us how to identify them and he assures us that judgment awaits them. And just to be clear, the threat of false prophets isn't limited to Jesus's day. In fact, you could argue that the threat of false prophets, false teachers are much more rampant today, particularly due to the, all the different platforms that exist things like the internet, things like social media. We need to be vigilant. We need to look out for some of these different identifiers, particularly the content of what they are teaching. Does it align with God's word? Is what they teach about Jesus true? These are the things that we need to look for. They're the easy first steps. What are they teaching? What are they putting out there for us? And on that note, I do want to give just a brief challenge because the phrase false teacher gets thrown around quite a bit in Christian circles. And I would caution us not to use that term flippantly. Here's why. Every false teacher has bad theology. And when I say bad theology, theology in general, just when we use that term, it's not some high and mighty big term. It's actually just very simply, it means a word about God. It means knowledge about God. We all have theology. 
We all have thoughts. We have all what we know about God. So when we talk about theology, we're talking about what do we know about him? What do we know about his word? That is what we call theology. Every false teacher has bad theology, but not every teacher with bad theology is a false teacher. Every false teacher has bad theology, but not every teacher with bad theology is a false teacher. Here's what I mean by that. You can know Jesus, you can have the basic tenets of the gospel and salvation right, and yet have poor theology related to other aspects of God's word. That's a bad teacher. That's someone who, no, they should probably not be platformed in any way, shape, or form, but that is not a false teacher. Because remember that a false teacher claims to have the truth, but teaches a different gospel. As we heard in 1 John 4, what they teach about Jesus is not true. Both of them are dangerous. Avoid both. But the consequences of listening to the false teacher is much worse because the false teacher will lead you on a march towards hell. The bad teacher will at least bring you the gospel. You just might not be able to mature much beyond that under their teaching. So the bottom line is this. Be careful not to mislabel a bad teacher a false teacher because they are not the same thing. So Jesus first warns us about those who wear masks to deceive others, false teachers. But he also warns us about those who wear masks and deceive ourselves, themselves. If you wear a mask long enough, if you play pretend long enough with something as real looking and real feeling like this, you sometimes become convinced that our identity is actually the mask. Remember that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is drawing a very clear line in the sand to make it clear who will enter the kingdom of heaven. It won't be those who go the way of the wide gate who seek to earn their salvation, their own standard of righteousness. And it won't be those who teach the way of the wide gate. Here he continues drawing the line in the sand in verse 21, saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I believe that this is arguably the scariest passage in all of the Bible because it involves self-deception. The first person that's self-deceived is the one who talks about God's will but does not do God's will. This is the person who proclaims Jesus. This is the person who talks the talk. They, they know all the, the right so-called church language. This is the person who they talk this way in church settings perhaps. So on a Sunday morning, maybe even in their Bible study, they talk this way. But the Sunday morning version of them is night and day different than the Sunday afternoon to Saturday night version of them. If a tree is known by its fruit, their fruit doesn't match what they claim to be their root. 
worshiping Jesus, right? They proclaim Jesus, but the fruit of their lives, the way that they live their lives does not accurately reflect what it is that they're claiming to be their foundation being Jesus. James actually warns about this self-deception in James chapter one. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, referring to God's word, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, does not control his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The hearer and the sayer both wear a mask and deceive themselves. They talk the talk, but do not walk the walk. In fact, James, shortly after this in James 1, he explains that faith without works is dead. He spends quite a bit of time talking about this. And to be clear, our, our works do not save us. There's nothing that we do that can earn salvation. Of course not. But they do serve as spiritual fruit that proves the genuineness of our faith. Jesus says it's not the one who talks about God's will that will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does God's will. But even that very clearly needs to be qualified. Do you notice that immediately after this, he talks about those who claim to have done works in his name? These individuals, they outwardly appear to do God's will but they do so apart from a genuine relationship with Jesus. That means that it is possible to outwardly do the things God calls us to and still fall short of actually doing God's will. Now you might ask, but, but wait, how are these people that Jesus mentions, like how are they doing these things in verse 22? How are they doing these things in the first place? And, and even then they're doing them in his name. How can that be anything other than God's will? Two reasons. Just because we do or say something in Jesus' name, like these are, these are not magical words that give us automatically the thing that we're asking for. Especially when it's someone saying it who does not genuinely know Jesus. In Jesus' name, in that case especially, they're just empty words. They are powerless apart from Jesus. Secondly, just because there are supernatural works, just because there are mighty works, it doesn't mean it's from God. Just because there are signs, just because there are works, it does not mean that it is from God. In the same way that teaching must be tested, works, mighty works, miracles, these type of things must be tested because the kingdom of darkness also displays a sort of power. It's just a counterfeit. We must be aware of that. These are individuals operating in the kingdom of darkness, but they have convinced themselves that they are operating in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now you might look around and you might say, yeah, I don't see too many around me claiming to do these things in Jesus' name. Maybe not. But there are those who'd say, Lord, did I not faithfully attend Sunday mornings with your church? Well, at least when I can make it two to three times a month. L- Lord, did I, did I not go to that Bible study week in, week out? And did I not even share and give my opinion on what we were talking about every week? Did I not go to all the socials involved? Lord, maybe for some of us, Lord, did I, did I not grow up in a Christian home? Did I not receive all of your teaching from my parents? Did they not raise me this way? And I, I know all the stuff. Lord, did I not get a Christian education? That even my schooling, it was a blessing and I got to learn all about you and I did all the things around that. Lord, did I not go on that mission trip? Did I not do these things? These are all good things. I want to be clear. These are all good things when they come from a place of faith. Remember that in God's economy, doing the right thing for the wrong reason isn't actually doing the right thing. It isn't God's will for us to follow his word outwardly, but not be transformed inwardly. We saw this last week when we talked about the Israel and the Pharisees. Israel walked the walk, right? They, they did all the sacrifices, They did all of these things, and yet God looked at them and says, I don't desire your sacrifices. He sent them prophets repeatedly to bring them back. Your heart is far from me. I don't want your outward worship, which isn't actually worship. We look at the Pharisees, who Jesus calls whitewashed tombs. They they outwardly did all the things of the law, and then some, and yet they were dead inside. It's not just about the doing, it's about why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it from a place of worship? It is possible to talk like a Christian and even walk like a Christian, but do do so from a place of spiritual deadness. It is possible. The difference between the one who is genuinely um, doing God's will and the one who is deceived into believing they're doing God's will, it is a fine line. But that fine line is faith. See, faith isn't just head knowledge about Jesus. It is knowledge that has to move from the head to the heart and surrender. It's not just head knowledge. It must move to our hearts. And then from the, the flow of our hearts, we will speak and act in a way that is honoring to the Lord. Perhaps the scariest part of this passage is the word many. It's easy to gloss over that real quick. Jesus says that on that day, referring to the day that we stand before Jesus, and we will all do so, by the way, we will all stand before Jesus. He says, many will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Think about going to a a big game maybe a concert, maybe a show of some kind, and you, and, you, and you walk up to the gate, got your ticket in hand, you were excited to enter in, and you give your ticket to the one at the gate, and they pause for a moment, and they look at your ticket, they look up at you, and they say, this isn't real. This is a counterfeit. I cannot let you in. 
you have to go, you have to leave. What a sinking feeling that is. Now, in the example like that, that's, man, it's a loss of time, it's a loss of money, but what we're talking about here this morning, it's a loss of eternity. Jesus is saying, think about this, Jesus is saying that many of the many in the wide, that will enter by the way of the wide gate, many of that many will go the entirety of their lives convinced they are followers of Jesus only to stand before him and be surprised to hear, I never knew you. I mean, I know you, I'm God. I know everything about you. But I never had, I never knew you in a personal and intimate way. What I do know is that you never trusted in my death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. And so because of that, you must depart from me. This is a weighty section of scripture. And admittedly, one major challenge with teaching a passage like this is wanting the right people to hear the right thing. If you are a genuine follower of Jesus, man, I do not want you to leave here questioning your faith. That's not the point of this. That's not the point of, of this passage. Of course not. If you genuinely know Jesus, our desire, God's desire, he says so in his word, 1 John 5, John writes that so that we may have confidence that we know Jesus. So if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, I don't want you to leave here questioning your faith. I want you to have full confidence in who you are. But if you are the self-deceived, I want you to be afraid. But I, I want that fear to lead you to recognize you're wearing a mask and to, to take it off and seek the real thing. And so in light of this, the big question that each of us faces this morning is how can I know my faith is genuine? And there are three self-examination questions that I would propose we ask ourselves. The first being, do I have the Holy Spirit? Paul says in Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Shortly after this, verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Simply put, every genuine follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. So the question, am I led by the spirit? Do I feel prompted to live out God's word in the various moments of my day? The Spirit also convicts us of sin. Do I feel conviction when I sin? Or, or maybe when I'm feeling tempted to sin, am I feeling convicted that, that it might stop me and that I might see the way of escape that, that God promises me? Paul makes it very simple. If you have the Spirit... You're a follower of Jesus. If you do not, you are not. The second question, which is the largest question, it's, it's the most vague, but I think that it will help us the most. Does my life bear the fruit of someone who knows Jesus? That's what we've been talking about. If someone followed me around for a day, would they see someone that looks like everyone else in the world that doesn't know Jesus, or would they see something different? I would not expect them to see perfection, 
but does it look different? Jesus says it this way in, in John 14, 15, very straight. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John expands on this in 1 John 2, 3 through 6. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him, being Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, it's completed. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Again, this isn't a matter of perfection. The follower of Jesus still struggles with sin, but is it a struggle? Like, is it genuinely a struggle or is it indulgence? Because sometimes we indulge our sin and we just say it's a struggle. The follower of Jesus struggles in sin. They don't indulge repeatedly and feel nothing of it. There's a difference between those two things. Another way of asking to ask this big question is, does my life reflect my love for Jesus or my love for sin? When someone looks at my life, would they see someone who loves Jesus or someone who just loves sin? Do I take pleasure in the things that Jesus died for? Scripture is clear that a life characterized by sin, is, it's incompatible with following Jesus. But striving after him, even in the fight against sin, even in the genuine struggle, that proves to be genuine. Again, a tree is known by its fruit. The last question I'd pose is this, do others see that my life bears the fruit of someone who knows Jesus? We are naturally biased. And because of our sin, our view of ourselves, it's often distorted. Jesus redeems that. And the Spirit helps us with that. But if we have neither of them, it's impossible to have a clear view of ourselves. If you are unsure your faith is genuine, ask the people around you what they see. I mean, you should, these people, they should be ones that you trust. They should be people that know you well. And these should be people that, that are spiritually mature in their own right. All right, so maybe you invite them to examine your heart. Or maybe out of care and concern, they come to you unprompted with questions about your faith and about your spiritual health. In either case, would we have the humility to either make the ask ourselves or receive their concern well? So in light of the difficulty of a passage like this, as the band comes back up to lead us, I believe that it would be appropriate for us to ask the Lord to examine us. Right, we're talking about asking other people to examine us, but why don't we take some time, just a few moments, to ask the Lord to examine us as the one who, who truly, who really, he's the only one who truly knows the state of our heart. I wanna take a few moments to pray, right, just between us and the Lord. And as, you, and as you invite the Lord to examine your heart, as, you, as you're asking the question, Lord, do I, do I truly know you? Lord, would you, would you open my eyes to this truth? If you, maybe for you as a follower of Jesus, you were able to ask that question and very quickly say, nope, I am confident 
in, in who God has made me to be. I am fully confident. If that is you, maybe that leads you to a time of, of praise. Maybe that leads you to a time of, of thanking the Lord for that confidence and asking him, Lord, would you give me, would you increase my faith? Would you give me confidence and to walk in the freedom that you have given to me? Maybe this is what characterizes your time of prayer. But if you have even the slightest question about the genuineness of your faith, what's stopping you in this moment from acknowledging Jesus as Savior over your sin and surrendering him to as the Lord of your life? What's stopping you from doing that? If you are unsure, why pretend to be forgiven? Why pretend to have new life in Jesus? You can have it if you would acknowledge that your sin is sin and that Jesus died for that sin and trust that his death and his resurrection serves as the perfect payment for that sin once and for all. You can have that this morning. So wherever you are at, let's just take a few moments between us and the Lord, praying to him in the silence of our own hearts, asking him to examine our hearts. Let's take some time to do that now. Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. You are God and nothing is hidden from you. And so Lord, we collectively invite you to take inventory of our hearts. Lord, search us, know us, test us, test our thoughts. Lord, if, if you find us and reveal us to be genuine followers of Jesus, would you increase our faith? Would we not question our faith, but have full confidence in who you are and who you have made us to be? Would we walk in the freedom that you desire for, for us? And Lord, if there is anyone here who, who is questioning this truth about themselves and genuinely does not know you, would you, by the power of your spirit, remove the mask? We cannot do this on our own we ask that you would open up our eyes if that is us. Would you convict us on our, of our sin and would it, would it lead to a place of repentance, of turning from that sin into you? God, only you can do this and we ask that you would. Ask that you would use the words spoken this morning and the, and the songs that have been sung to, to give us a heart of worship wherever it is that we are at, Lord. We give this time to you and trust that you will do only what you can do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, K-12, 
Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.